0: Welcome to Aspen Insight, from the Aspen Institute. I'm
1: Zach St. Louis. And I'm Marcy Krivenan.
0: In November, people across America cast their votes for female candidates. More women are heading to Congress than ever before.
2: They're women from very different backgrounds, and they're bringing passions and stories and new perspectives that are much
1: more relevant to the
2: future of communities and countries. Today, we
1: catch up with two women leaders within the Aspen Institute, Anne Mosley, who you just heard, and Peggy Clark.
0: Anne runs the Institute's Ascend program that works to move families toward educational success and economic security.
1: Peggy is executive director of the Aspen Global Innovators Group, which widens access to health and prosperity for people living at the world's margins.
0: I sat down with both of them to talk about what a record number of women in Congress means for policy, how this change in politics impacts the women's movement, and how women across the world are fighting bias and discrimination. Here's our conversation. I wanted to get you guys in the studio because we're at this really exciting moment, I think, in our political life in this country right now. Last month, we saw A historic number of women elected to Congress. Over 100 women are going to be entering Congress or still in Congress next month for this new term. And you both do work that touches on women in leadership. And I'm curious about your thoughts on this. And I just really wanted to get your input on what this could mean for the country. And maybe we could start with you both work on this initiative here called the Aspen Forum on Women and Girls. Can you tell me about what that is, how that's a collaboration between your programs and what that's all about?
2: Thanks so much, Zach. I think the Aspen Forum on Women and Girls is both an organic and then a really strategic collaboration that uh, both Peggy and I with our colleagues have wanted to sort of create a real space for the next set of conversations that need to happen, that need to happen at the right way with the right people at the right time We really want to have the right leaders around the table, and that's cross-generation. That's bringing leaders together from different sectors. You know, what are we learning from the military that could also inform grassroots or academia that could inform business? But very cross-sectoral, absolutely intersectional. Both uh, Peggy and I bring a real historical reverence to this work. And when I think about the seminal work of leaders like Kimberly Crenshaw, who really put intersectionality um, on the map, and now now the next generation, it rolls off their tongue, but that we think about women in the greater context of race, culture, justice, and class, and all of these pieces. When Peggy and I thought about this, we wanted it to be about solutions. Um, we wanna really understand the problem, we wanna define it, we wanna solve it, but this is about shifting into a new portfolio of solutions that are gonna put women and girls at the center, they're gonna shift the power paradigm And they're going to make a difference in the lives of women and girls, but also for families and communities and economies and, quite frankly, the future of democracy. You know, Peggy has been an inspiration to me and is a dear friend who I've tracked her work both in the U.S. and around the globe. And I think there was a spirit that we wanted to be to contribute in whatever way made sense for our work and for the Aspen Institute to help usher in a new conversation that could put that Aspen leaf to work for women and girls and really the future of economic justice, democracy, and opportunity.
3: Great. Beautifully said, Anne. We are at a really, really poignant moment in the women's movement. And to me, it feels like This sort of box has been cracked open, and and the sunlight has started to pour in, and all of these sort of skeletons have come out of the closet, um, and we are seeing things that were right under our nose, but we we never knew it before. Um, So some of these things are, you know, deeply emotional and deeply complex. So, uh, for example, watching and understanding the severity of um, sexual abuse, for example, in the the U.S. Olympic um, coach... And watching one after another, young girls come forward and say that this has been happening literally for 20 years and influenced their lives. And so we are all complicit in having these kinds of things happening under our nose, but not acknowledging them or acting on them. And similarly, the Kavanaugh hearing um, with Chrissy Blasey Ford, a young scientist, a scientist, um, standing forward and saying why, um, why, what was happening with the Supreme Court nominee. So I feel like we're in this moment when, particularly at Aspen, when Aspen is not afraid to walk right into the middle of the most difficult questions we're having, that this is a, is a really key issue for each of us individually. How are we perceiving of gender relations? And how can we look anew at unconscious bias? And um to more pragmatic how can we as a corporation aspen and the military and everyone else respond to looking at new ways to address what we see as much, much greater um, discrimination against women. Um, so so for us, it's very, it's a personal um, mission, Aspen Forum among Women and Girls, and um, I think Anne and I are of different generations ourselves, and she's more focused on the U.S., I'm more focused internationally, but I am feeling increasingly impatient to be very, very brave and very, very bold. And so the work we've done so far is to bring some of the leading thinkers um, to put some of the hardest questions on the table.
0: So a big part of this is bringing a gender lens to policy work. And what does what does that look like in practice? And why is that an important thing to do? Why does that kind of work matter?
2: Bringing a gender lens and also bringing a racial equity lens, mm-hmm. I think it's really important to how they come together. At its heart, a gender lens is thinking about how does a policy or a structure play out across gender, which is... Uh, we're in sort of that whole world is unfolding in, in, in many ways. For us, in many ways, it's how do economic policies and structures invest in women and girls? We still are sitting here in the U.S. with a stubbornly small number of women in leadership positions in all sectors, in all sectors, except for, you know, the nonprofit sector, but not in the top jobs. And how we think about uh, the the power paradigm playing out so that if it's women from the most you know, low-wage work, for example, women of color that are, you know, working, for example, and, you know, um, at a hotel, and they are doing the room cleaning service, and the kind of abuse and centers that happen there, how do we make sure that that corporate structure says no longer is that acceptable or possible? That's not just the right thing to do, but that's like standard business practice. Great, exactly.
3: Yeah, you know, I think, Zach, to me, the terminology gender lens um, is not as important as unpacking what that means as us tapping into a sort of a zeitgeist and an emotional moment that we're facing. Because um, I, for example, in terms of terminology, you know, I'm so surprised that people um, are uncomfortable with the term feminist. And there's this whole raging battle that first wave, second wave, third wave feminists, and are we um, recognizing enough the complexities of of how we have fought this battle for women's rights. And um, what I feel more is, is, is really kind of just more emotional, like let's <laughs> let's get down to work. And so gender lens has often been used to try to bring more resources. So, for example, in a given impact investing fund or a bank, or a, it, the, the gender lens would be to say, how much of this money is really going to women-owned businesses? Um, but, but again, this are, those are just labels and terminologies that are not going to take us where we need to go in terms of understanding why the United States is so far behind in terms of, of women's equality to the rest of the world and then how we can be better humans to each other.
2: If I can jump on to um, Peggy's calling out this moment in time, the zeitgeist, because I think that's precisely it. This is an incredible moment in time where, as Martin Luther King talks about in a letter from Birmingham City Jail, the creative tension that happens at a moment when there's real changes afoot and there's also real pushback. Mm -hmm. And when I think about the you know, the one-year anniversary of the Me Too social media campaign and the Time's Up. I'm sort of looking for that bumper sticker that says, Time's Up. No, I'm actually fed up. (laughs) And it's time that we move beyond and flip the script. And so we think about this wave of um, women who've been elected to office, both here in the U.S. and around the world. They're women from very different backgrounds. And they're bringing passions and stories and new perspectives that are much more relevant to the future of communities and countries. And I do think how we are ushering in this new wave from a position of power and relevance and purpose that is going to lead to sustainability, that is going to lead to justice in very concrete ways. I I do think there is a moment in time that we're still, we're going to be working through in the next few years, real backlash and real resistance and how we continue to drive forward. So this next wave of feminism, of womanism, of, of rethinking power and who's in charge is very powerful because we do look at like women lead differently, women have different priorities, and how that affects structures in society. So I just I just really wanted to, you know, I think Peggy is spot on that this is a moment in time. And there's great a lot of progress and a lot of opportunity. But I you know, how we are strategic, where we're going to see different forms of backlash, um, or people trying to change labels or undercut folks, this is a really important period.
0: So when we're looking at the changing of demographics in our Congress in leadership, even just slightly as it is now, but it is historic in a lot of ways. Are there specific policies that you think could be enacted by a more diverse leadership in this country that have been overlooked?
3: Well, there's some that are really, really obvious. And and I I also want to just jump on what you said, it's it's really exciting and fun that we elected 100, 100 women members of Congress um, in this past midterm election. It's so interesting. And there's a certain kind of lightness and playfulness to it because there's so much interest in diversity. So for example, for those of you that haven't watched it, um, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, a new congressperson from New York, has an Instagram that is Hilarious. And it has millions of people watching it. And she's showing what it's like when you're onboarded to Congress from this 29 year old brilliant woman's perspective. And so there are things like how far away the women's bathroom is, how they are onboarded onto Congress, how they pick their offices, all those kinds of things. So there's this sort of young freshness that she's bringing. But at a minimum, there's a few other really pragmatic things. We have the first pregnant woman. And so the issue of whether, how child care, if child Child care um, that benefits that she's receiving are the same as those for the rest of the country. So, a number having more women in Congress is allowing us to look at um, the inadequacy of our child care and our health provisions as it relates to women and children and families. That's one area.
2: Looking at this wave, who brought in? I think adding into sort of Peggy's story, there are folks and women who have never run for political office before. They were just fed up. Time for a new yeah. era. Well, and it, it cracked open that democracy, hey, it's anybody's game. Yeah. It's not the old boys' network. <laughs> and, you know, one funny story is Lauren Underwood, who was a um, long shot, successful new congresswoman for Illinois. She, I had the chance to meet her twin sister, Lindsay. And she said, hey, my sister's running for Congress in a Republican uh, district outside of Chicago. And she jumped in as someone who is a nurse and had done work around health care and also has her own health challenges. And she said, I want to make sure healthcare is available for all. And she had more than 10 Democratic other primary challenges, um, you know, kind of challengers that had more kind of political or traditional experience. She beat them all out and ended up actually beating the Republican candidate because she had the right message purpose, sense of connectivity, freshness that Peggy puts out there. Yeah, I totally agree and you know, and I think
3: um, to your point, Zach, it's interesting you're saying sort of what are some of the policies that bring forward. What's so intriguing is very often the women's agenda is the family's agenda. So there, you know research forever and ever has shown that if you invest in a woman that that leads to that generally goes towards the family's well-being and towards the children. So not only in the US but everywhere the women's agenda is kind of a basic human agenda. I want my children to be able to go to school. I want to be able to take care of health care need if we have a crisis. Um, I want my community to be safe. And so I think what we saw about this this women's wave that just happened in and the midterms, and then what's happening globally is, it's a it's a really ground game. It's like, what do I need in my community, and what are these sort of basic needs that families need? And so, I think that, I think there's a huge movement, and you know, women are a little bit better place to bring those issues forward and will continue to bring those issues forward. So, for example, um, on the global side, um, we see women taking over countries that were deeply conflicted, um, years of of, co- of conflict and violence, who are simply bringing forward an agenda of peace and security and education and health. And so those are the key issues. They're the key social issues. And I think the women's wave is is claiming that in a very grounded, practical way, and that's why we saw some of the victories that we saw this time.
1: Zach, it's the most wonderful time of the year, right? The holiday season?
0: It's debatable. I love the holidays, but it's so cold. It's so tough to just keep warm.
1: Well, as you can see, I'm decked out in my warm duds from Patagonia. And speaking of that company, their CEO, Rose Marcario, is featured in a recent episode from Aspen Ideas To Go. Oh, yeah? Yeah, she sits down with Eileen Fisher, who started her own clothing company, Eileen Fisher Inc., decades ago. Turns out the apparel industry is a huge polluter. Marcario and Fisher go over what their companies are doing to reduce the industry's carbon footprint. They talk about Steps anyone can take, actually.
0: That sounds great. And if their advice means that I'll be warmer in the winter months, I'm in.
1: Find the episode, Repairing the Apparel Industry, in your favorite podcast player. Just search Aspen Ideas to Go.
0: And here's the rest of my interview with Peggy Clark and Ann Mosley. So you just brought up something I wanted to bring up, which is the fact that you're with Toronto Burke this summer in Aspen and you were on a panel with her.
2: Uh, So Toronto, good morning. Thank you so much. Um,
0: Called what's next for uh, women. And this was again in June of, of this past year. This was before the midterms. This was, we were really in the height of talking about me too. It was dominating national headlines and you each said some things that, um, I'd like to recap for you now. Uh, And you said that when we think about what's What's next next for women, women, it's not... It's not
2: women versus men. men. It's all of us moving forward together, but really putting women at the center and also... You went on to say that
0: 50% of men think that the Me Too movement is actually making it more difficult for men. Um, And it it needs to be a conversation across genders and across generations if we're going to move forward together. Peggy, you said something I found really interesting, which was that... You found that there were no systems of accountability. There
3: are, there are no systems of accountability, obviously. And so when people started saying believe the women, the, the systems are really messed up right now. I mean, so what you're saying, we have to claim accountability. Yeah. We, and and there, you have to live and do it and say it. And,
0: and it's going to take a really long time. So what you're saying is that we have wow. to claim accountability and you have to live and do it and say it. And it's going to take a really long time to figure out how to change those processes. In this moment... Do you feel more hopeful about that than you did then? About the processes being changed, about accountability being different? And f- this is a question for both of you. And and you know, do you think more men are getting involved? Do you think the conversations happening more?
3: I mean, to be really honest, um, most people are not feeling more hopeful. They're feeling really exhausted and really tired. And I think in most meetings that I'm in with with um, leaders in the women's movement, um, there is a certainly the Kavanaugh hearings were incredibly. Um, demoralizing for uh, for a lot of people. Um, I think the way, that I think I'm going to answer this in a really personal way, which is to say that I think that there is a real need for conversations between men and women. And I understand that a lot of men are feeling like, I don't know how to act anymore, I don't know what to do. And this is very much a generational thing. Um, And those conversations need to happen. We don't really have a guidepost that's showing us the way. Um, For example, there are are a lot of young people here at Aspen who have approached me about the sexual harassment issue. And I've thought about, well, should I create some sort of talking circles or ways to talk about this? And to be really honest with you, uh, I'm nervous about doing it because we don't have a real way forward to really unpack this question of how we're interacting with each other about these issues of gender because they're changing so much, um, but but to your point, I do think that that this is out in the open, so it's, it's almost like we let the tiger out of the cage, and the t- yeah, tiger is not going to go back. So it's kind of like <laughs> pacing outside, and the cages are changing their shape and and everything else. But I do think that there are these windows of light that we see. Um, there are new approaches to dealing with sexual harassment issues. But we are coming a long way forward from not believing the the, the victim at all um, and protecting the institution to trying to figure out how you can wade your way through the legal and the practical experiences to, to come up with something that is fair and that is accountable. And I think we're just in the beginning of that.
2: I think, you know, Zach, when you, it has to be, men have to be part of the solution and and see this as vital to their core personhood, to also the future of their success. So I, so I just think this is so fundamental. If we're going to break new ground and really make this the norm, so you know, and I talked earlier about paid family medical leave. Well, if men were taking advantage of family leave just as much as women as they do in many other countries. It would become a non-issue. I mean, when we see things just, you know, unfortunately, sometimes it's a woman's issue, uh, you know, an occupation that women are predominantly um, the the workers in, it gets paid less. And, you know, we also see there's some interesting, in the earlier research you cited, I just want to do a shout out to the Pew, um, the Pew Institute, Pew Foundation, that was their research looking at some of this you know people feeling like me too or time's up going too far that was their research probably on their website um, but finding a way for people to feel part of this solution and for men to feel part of the solution is really important and there is research out there that some of the um, and this hasn't been part of a orchestrated movement but male CEOs who have daughters tend to have Um, better track records and policy in terms of women in management or other kind of policies or even on their boards. You know, and that connects, as Peggy's always talking so eloquently, the personal and the system-wide reactions. But looking at, you know, where their allies, like some of those male CEOs, um, you know, I have to say on the congressional level, I was, uh, Peggy, demoralized and disgusted looking at the behavior at the Supreme Court, Um, nomination process. And, you know, you can have different points of view. We're the Aspen Institute. We'll go liberal, we'll go conservative. But the kind of behaviors and baselines of respects were um, shocking. I have a 16-year-old son and an 18-year-old daughter. And that was the most politically awakening and alarming moment for them both thinking about this is acceptable behavior and it can lead into a Supreme Court justice. So I just think there's a there's a, a moment when we also think about the next generation that they're ready to step into this conversation in a whole new way, and we need to get behind
0: that. So we're, we're talking about the women's wave. The fact is that this isn't just a domestic wave. This is an international one as well. And Peggy, I was wondering if you could take us through some of the lessons we could learn from women in leadership that are happening around the world right now
3: you know, the truth is this is really is a global movement. And what's happening in the U.S. is is um, intense right now. But in the rest of the world, we've seen a lot of movement towards increases in women's political leadership. The new president of Ethiopia is a woman. There are a number of countries that have more than commitments to more than 50 percent of their parliaments being led by women. And the U.S. trails way behind, actually, in most of those global, uh, global counts. But, for example, in Rwanda and Tanzania and Sweden, Sweden and Iceland and Canada, it's the norm that more than 50% of the cabinet, as well as the parliament, are women. Um, and the prime minister of New Zealand is a woman, um, Jacinda, she was the first uh, head of state to be pregnant, <laughs> while she was head of state, in the world. Um, so the, this wave is happening all over the world. I think what we're seeing as a result of that, Zach, is a little bit on what we talked about before, which is in countries that have had equality, more equality in political leadership, policies that focus. Focus on women and girls and families um, get further, and there's more results. There's more girls in school. There's um, there's lower levels of child mortality. Um, there's higher levels of of peace and security, and there's a whole frame which is a conversation around how women's leadership. For example, you you mentioned our our uh, award to President Ellen Johnson Sirleaf we gave her the Madeleine K. Albright Global Development Award this year, and Literally, the country of Liberia was in tatters for decades, violent, violent civil war. And Ellen Johnson Sirleaf ran on a very simple campaign, which was about safety, children being able to walk to school, people being able to have their basic needs met. And And she won, and she rebuilt a democracy by putting together the first women's police force everywhere, anywhere in the world, um, and sort of calling people to a, to a more almost a humanistic or a moral place in terms of their behavior. So so the women's wave is happening internationally. It, it needs to happen much more. But I think we are finding the U.S. is sort of falling ever behind, um, um, it, particularly in terms of heads of state. They're, you know, Angela Merkel and some of the leading Christian Lagarde um, leaders – in, in global politics and global economy um, are women. And, and so it's not as as far of a prospect as it feels to be in, in the U.S. So it's it's pretty exciting what's happening internationally.
0: Just before we close out, what's next for the work for the two of you? What's next for the Aspen Women Forum on Women and Girls uh, and people listening? How can they get involved?
3: Great. We'd love for anyone listening to this podcast to get involved. Um, Aspen Forum on Women and Girls is an open community. We will be pushing out newsletters on a regular basis and holding salons and roundtables. There's a couple of areas we're going to go deep into. Um, one is women-centered national strategies and feminist foreign policies, looking at the work of, of Sweden and Canada in that regard and um, countries that are really defining that in a different way. And then secondly, around Me Too and Beyond, what um, that we're going to have a series of roundtables around best practice, around how we move into cultural and structural change. Um, but we're going to have some really cool people joining us we'd love your suggestions about who you think we should feature Um, we'll be doing more podcasts more salons more roundtables anything else Anne what I miss I
2: think it's great I I think you (laughs) nailed it I think it's great (laughs) great
0: well thank you both so much and Peggy for sitting down with us today and uh, this was such a great conversation Thank,
2: thank you Zach thanks Zach thanks Peggy
0: that's it for today's show make sure to subscribe to Aspen Insight on your favorite podcast player so you never miss an episode.
1: New shows drop the last Thursday of the month and additional bonus episodes are featured from time to time.
0: And join the conversation. Send us your thoughts on Twitter by using the hashtag Aspen Insight.
1: Aspen Insight is a production of the Aspen Institute. The Institute is a nonpartisan forum for values-based leadership and the exchange of ideas.
0: Special thanks to our colleagues with the Aspen Global Innovators Group and Ascend at the Aspen Institute.
1: So Zach, this is your last episode. I am so sad about that.
0: I know I'm sad too, but it's been so exciting. And thank you all for listening and keep listening. Tell your friends and yeah, thank you so much. And for the last time, I'm Zach St. Louis.
1: And I'm Marcy Krivenen.
0: Thanks for listening.
1: And don't worry, we're not going away. Zach is sadly going away, but Aspen Insight will continue into the future. So expect more episodes in the near future. Thanks for listening.